Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. We'll look at that whole chapter here this morning, verses 1 through 17. This is our Recovering Awe teaching series. And guess what we're going to talk about this morning? Humility. How many are thinking that there's uh, people sitting right next to you that really need to hear this message? (laughs) Show of hands. Don't point them out. You're pointing them out, huh? My wife's saying, yes, I need to hear my own message, don't I? Hey, grab your sermon notes. Take a look at this. This will be part of our introduction. In our broken world, there are two ways we try to be our own Savior and Lord. Two ways we try to fix ourselves. Two ways we try to find fulfillment and happiness. There's the elder brother way, and there's the younger brother way. You guys tracking with me? You guys familiar with the story? It's typically called the prodigal son story. We think of the younger brother as the prodigal. Actually, they were both prodigal, but better yet, I think the dad was the prodigal because the word prodigal means extravagant, and the dad was really, really extravagant in his love for both of these sons. But both of the sons were wayward sons. And that's typically how we kind of deal with life. We fall into one of those two categories or we go back and forth between those two categories. And so you got the elder brother. The elder brother uh, gig or route to try to fix, uh, fix the world or fix ourselves or to find fulfillment and happiness is religion and moral conformity. I know what I'll do is I'll go to church and I'll read my Bible and I'll pray and I'll do all the right stuff and then I'll live a really a good life. That's what I'll do and that's, that's called religion. And elder brothers divide the world in two, in two groups. The good people, like us, are in and the bad people who are the real problem with the world are out. The good are in, the bad are out. And then you got the younger brother uh, perspective or way. That's the irreligion self-discovery. So the elder brother is, I'm going to keep all the rules. The, the younger brother is, I'm going to break all the rules or I'm going to make up my own rules. That's irreligion or self-discovery. Uh, younger brothers, even if they don't believe in God at all, do the same thing, saying, no, the open-minded, intolerant, or the progressive people are in, and the bigoted, narrow-minded people who are the real problem with the world are out. So both groups tend to, tend to have the good are in, the bad are out, based on their own standard. Both of these self-salvation projects, because that's what they are, self-salvation projects are motivated out of pride. You can read more about that in Luke 15, 11 through 32. We talked about it last weekend. But what's interesting about this, the gospel is neither one of those or the other. The gospel is something totally different. And, and, and what the gospel tells us is that no one is so good that they don't need the grace of God. Which, by the way, there's a lot of Americans today, if you were to ask them, where are you going when you die? Most would say, well, I'm going to heaven. And then you were to ask them, so what makes you think you're going to heaven? They would say, because I'm basically a, I'm a really good person. And the Bible would put them in this elder brother category that no, no, you're not. You you are out of touch with not only the holiness of God, but your own sinfulness. And... uh, And so no one is so good that they don't need the grace of God, that's the elder brother, nor so bad that they can't receive the grace of God, that's the younger brother. You can't earn it with your goodness or unearn it with your badness. What we're talking about is having a relationship with God and knowing that you're going to heaven when you die and and how do we fix this world because it's pretty busted up and it's broken. 
Here's how I know that people are beginning to get it. This is how I was able to realize that I was getting it because I, was, I tended to do the elder brother kind of routine. That was me. That's what I found, fell prey to. So you kind of need to identify which one you tend to run towards. But uh, this is when you know that you're beginning to get it is that your amazement of God's grace is really the test of how in touch you are of not only your dire condition, your sinfulness, <clears throat> but also the magnitude of his provisions, the combination of not only your sinfulness, but the magnitude of his provision, uh, his costly, indispensable love for us on the cross. And when you begin to see the combination of those two, you are amazed by God's grace. Grace becomes amazing to the degree that you're in touch with your sinfulness and that's your dire condition apart from God. Whether you're an elder brother or a younger brother, combined with the magnitude of his provision, his grace. If grace isn't very amazing to you, it's probably because you have some pride going on in your life. And, uh, and hopefully we'll be able to uncover that as we study God's word here this morning. And so, so what's interesting, and this is what you need to keep in mind. So oftentimes when people ask me, well, so what's the difference between, isn't Christianity just like every other major religion that's out there? And, and I, when people say that, I, I know that they haven't obviously studied it and they don't know the difference because there's a major difference. It's just, it's like a night and day difference. Because you could put every other belief system, whether it's elder brother, younger brother, belief system in one category, the good are in, the bad are out. You meet the standard, you're in, you don't, you're out. That's not the gospel. That's not the Bible. The Bible actually says what? The humble are in and the proud are out. Isn't that interesting? It's fascinating. It's captivating. The gospel is not elder brother or younger brother. It's, it's like it's something totally different. And, uh, and in fact, Jesus said the humble are in and the proud are out, Luke 18, 14. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to who? To the humble. Wow, it sounds like we need to learn what that means to be humble because I, I don't want to be on the other, other side of that. I don't want God to oppose me. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The fastest way to be like Satan is to try to be God. And, and when you look at both the elder and younger brother, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to be, they're trying to be God. They, they, want, they want stuff from the father, but they don't want the father. They, they want the inheritance. They want the goods but they actually don't want the Father. The Father's a means to an end, so God becomes a means to an end, whether you're trying to keep all the rules or break all the rules. You don't want God, you just want to have fun. You just want to have the stuff. That's the idea here. And, uh, and what's fascinating about the Christian life is that all you need, all you need is need. All you need is to realize Oh my goodness, I've tried the younger brother gig and that doesn't work. I've tried the elder brother gig, I'm still empty and I need him. And Yes, and that's by his grace we begin to see that. All you need to follow Jesus Christ is need and a lot of people don't have it because of pride. So this is really an important message. I say that every week, don't I? Yeah. <laughs> They're all important. Anything from this book, from God's word, is important. So this is really important, especially because I want to be on the side. I want his grace. I want to experience his grace. I want to have humility in my life. And so that's where we're headed. What we're going to do here is I'm going to pray, ask for God's help as we study this because we need his help. But I'd like to also pray, kind of do a, uh, start with a memorial weekend prayer. I think it would be really good for us.
Because you guys know that Memorial Weekend is more than just barbecues, you know, and backyard swimming parties and things like that. There's something that, that we, we remember this weekend, and so I thought it would be good for us to just kind of reflect on it just momentarily, and then we'll move on into this study. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. Father God, uh, we are delighted to be here today. We love you. We love spending time with you. We love worshiping you in song, and now we worship you in, in the study of your word and we come with grateful hearts for the men and women who have paid the ultimate sacrifice to secure the freedoms we enjoy here in America. In many ways, we live because of their deaths. And we come with heavy hearts for families of the fallen, seven just this year. What pain, what sadness. We ask that you would be a father of compassion, a God of all comfort, to them for the great loss they have. And Father, as this Memorial Weekend reminds us of, of the brokenness of, of this world, we thank you that there is a remedy. We thank you for Jesus' sacrifice who secures the heavenly freedoms, eternal life for those who trust him alone for their salvation. We ultimately live because of his death. We also ask you, Father, teach us what it means to be humble so that we can be recipients of your amazing grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. So humility, so, so we're studying this book by the wealthiest, wisest, prettiest dude that ever walked this planet, Solomon. So he's, he's got a lot on us, and he's telling us, and he's straight up about this, is that life is empty apart from God. And if you don't believe that, it's because you have not walked out to the furthest implication, those things that you have built your life on other than God. It's just a matter of time, they're sandcastles. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to show us that it's all sandcastles. Everything in creation will let you down ultimately. Only God can satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. That's what we've been talking about throughout this and now he's teaching us this idea of humility. We're gonna spend a considerable amount of time on this first verse because we need to kind of define humility as we work through it. And so, so Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 1, who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. As I was thinking about that and I was kind of working through this and I looked at the further context and the rest of these verses, I was thinking of your face shining. The Bible talks a lot about that. And I, th I think that has to do with, it has to do with humility, has to do with wisdom. He's saying wisdom, but humility is part of that. Hardness of, of, of face has to do with pride. So we, let's define some terms. I've got them on your notes there. So what is wisdom? We've talked about that previous weeks. So wisdom is seeing and responding to life from God's perspective and, and power. Proverbs 1, 2 through 3. So where do we get wisdom? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 9, 10. So awe and intimacy with God gives us wisdom, gives us this new, totally different kind of perspective about our lives. And so then we, get it, we define the fear of the Lord. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If I want to begin to see and respond to life from God's perspective and power, I need the fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is a, is a life-transforming, joyful awe and wonder of the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for us that ruins you for anything else. Just totally wrecks you. See, if you think that there's anything more fascinating in creation than what can be found in the creator, 
you are being, uh, in your mind, your mind is being distorted and deceived by sin. Which that's, that's a lot of our life, isn't it? We, we, we chase after the things in creation. That's what Solomon is trying to help us with. Don't chase that stuff. Go for God. And so when we, when we find something more fascinating, it might be a relationship or a job or a career or whatever, whatever it might be, money in the bank or a big home or a nice car, what, if we find that fascinating, that's a dim glimpse of the fascination that we can find in God. So that's the fear of the Lord. Now, now this idea of, uh, of humility is kind of a slippery slope because uh, I've had people come up to me and say that they've said, I'm a very humble person, and I'm like, okay. And by you saying that, you are not humble, okay? And, and so when you admit that you're humble, then you're not humble. If you say that you're humble, you're not humble. But actually, a lot of the writers, theologians would say that humility, the beginning of humility is to recognize your pridefulness. So if you can't see your pridefulness, you're probably not very humble. And, uh, but if you say you think you're humble, then you're not humble at all. So it's kind of that slippery slope. And when you try to, you, you try to think, the, as you pursue humility, you can't pursue it directly. It's not something that can be found by direct pursuit, but it is a byproduct. It is a byproduct of the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord also not only brings wisdom, but it brings humility because you begin to see and respond to life from God's perspective and power. So believe me, if you have an accurate view of God, which you, that's what uh, wisdom brings to you and the fear of the Lord brings you this accurate view of God, you're going to have humility. It's going to be a byproduct of your life. And uh, Proverbs 15, 22.4 just tells us that it's, it's the byproduct of the fear of the Lord. Humility is a byproduct of the fear of the Lord. Now, here's your first fill in the blank. So I said all that to say this, that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. That's a C.S. Lewis statement along with this next idea. It is the freedom of self-forgetfulness. He calls it blessed self-forgetfulness because you are captivated with the beauty and the glory of God. I've added that. That's kind of my own paraphrase. But this is part of C.S. Lewis and what he writes in Mere Christianity in the chapter on pride. So humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less it is the freedom of, of self-forgetfulness because you are captivated with the beauty and the glory of God. Now, once you're filling the blank, look up here because you've got to get this. You've got to understand this, how this all went down in our own lives. <clears throat> you were meant to walk in the garden in the cool of the day, to look into the very face of your creator and to find all of the acceptance, security, and significance you'll ever need. To look him in the eyes and to, and to have all the value that you would ever need. And, but we turned away from God. We thought we were smarter than God in our, in our unbelief, thought he was holding out on us, pride, we thought we knew better than him, and then in idolatry, we replaced him with something else. In all of that, we turned away from God, and that spiritual alienation immediately, boom, created psychological alienation within our hearts. Because if, if he's the source of our sense of value and purpose and meaning in life, we turn away from him. We don't have purpose, value, and meaning anymore. We don't have the significance and security that we desperately need. Therefore, we begin to look elsewhere. In fact, uh, in Philippians 2.3, the Apostle Paul, writing to a group of people there in Philippi, he's trying to help them to work through their conflict. And this is what he says, do nothing out of rivalry or vain conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And he uses two key phrases there. The one is rivalry, which means comparison and competing. There's rivalry, this unhealthy comparison and competing, because you have conceit. And that word conceit is a fascinating word. It means vainglory, empty of glory. And that makes sense. 
So if we were meant to walk in the garden in the cool of the day, to look in the very face of our creator and to find all the satisfaction and all the significance and security we would ever need, filled up with his glory, knowing the glory of our creator, and we turned away from that, we're gonna be empty of glory. It's gonna create rivalry within our lives. It's gonna create all sorts of problems. And so this, it is driven by a need, so this this conceit, which is pride, this vain glory, empty of glory, it is driven by a need to prove to yourself and others that you matter. Because you're not getting it from God, so you gotta try to use everybody around you, your job, your career, the people in your life, they become a means to an end so that you can feel better about yourself. And there's nothing more miserable than the endless unsmiling concentration on self. That's, uh, C.S. Lewis also uses that phraseology. He says basically that's the essence of hell. Nothing will make you more miserable than obsessive concentration on your needs, your desires, your ego, your record. It's a terrible way to live. That's our culture, though. We live in a very narcissistic culture. That's narcissism. And our narcissism and our self-absorption really is from our not going to our creator and finding that sense of value and purpose that we desperately need. Now, as I kind of work through my own uh, pride and my own issues is that there's kind of a checklist here that I'm, I'm gonna walk you through that I, that's very helpful for me. And it always convicts me, shows, shows me my pride and misery loves company and so I'm gonna invite you in on this, let you experience some of this conviction yourself. Does you see, do you have pride in your life? And this is what it looks like to have uh, pride, to have uh, conceit, vainglory. You're empty of the glory that only God can give to you. And, and there's, four, there's four phrases. It's not on your notes, but you can write this on the, on the column or somewhere on your notes. But the first one is drivenness. The second one is criticism. The third one is defensiveness. And the fourth one is self-absorption. These are kind of characteristics that are a manifestation of being empty of glory. The first one, drivenness, or it can even be perfectionism. Any perfectionist in the house? You don't have to be a perfectionist to have this, but there's this drivenness, and it's a driven, driven, there's a difference between being driven out of a fullness versus out of an emptiness, or being driven for God's glory versus your glory, that your behavior becomes a product of not trying to, uh, not trying to find your identity, but out of an identity that you already have in Christ. And so certainly... Uh, there's nothing wrong with pursuing excellence in art and music and in business and education and athleticism because you love the field. In fact, if you're, if you're doing it out of a sense of completeness in Christ, if you have joy-filled competitiveness, then you will, you will be almost as happy if your friend writes great songs or succeeds in whatever it is that they succeed in as if you do it. You'll celebrate with, right along with them, whether it's you or them. But if you have... But if you have this emptiness, in fact, that's the, this vain glory produces uh, this, uh, it's motivated out of, out of, out of fear and pride. It, you're working for your identity rather than from an identity and from the love of God. It's driven out of an inner vacuum. It is a discontentment with your life, always needing to succeed, always unhappy, perpetually dissatisfied with performance, always restless. And that can be in general or specific to a field of achievement. I, I noticed that in my own life, even as a pastor. I did this when I was a pipe fitter welder. I did this when I was a paramedic. I've done this as a pastor. There was almost this restlessness. I gotta achieve more, I gotta do more. I gotta, what, 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 what drives that? What's going on? And oftentimes it was an emptiness inside of me that I needed to be getting filled with God. 
And there's nothing wrong with, with have a, a measure of drivenness if it's being driven out of a fullness rather than an emptiness. And so that's what happens. Do you have a drivenness and how, how are you driven? Why do you do what you do? Why are you wanting to accomplish what you want to accomplish? And then here's another one is criticism. Boy, this would obviously be seen in my life if you were around me. I really struggled with this. My wife brought this to my attention many times. I mean, she's like, you're a critical dude. And it was because, and you know how criticism works. Sometimes you use sarcasm to get your point across or just for humor. And sometimes that can be appropriate. But at some point, when we cross the line and start treating others with contempt, sneering, jeering, ridiculing, and putting people down, why do we do that? Why do people do that? I mean, think of the political system right now. Think of the politics and the politicians. Why do they do that? Because they're small. They are small on the inside, and they're trying to boost themselves up. We push, if I can push you down, especially if we're we're kind of in, in the same field, if I can push you down, I can, it'll build me up. That's evidence of vain glory. That's of conceit. It's like, why would you need that? Why would you need to push them down so you can feel better about yourself? You should actually want to be elevating them and helping them to, to experience what you have in Christ. So that's criticism. So you got drivenness, criticism, and then you got defensiveness. Oh, my goodness. There's another great one. Unteachable, can't take advice or correction, responds negatively to criticism. How do you do how do you do with criticism? Do you, do you find yourself blowing up or having a meltdown? I never had meltdowns. I blew up. That's how I could push my wife away from me. It's like, how dare you? How dare you touch God's anointed? <laughs> Don't you know who you're talking to? She goes, I know exactly who I'm talking to, and you better get your act together, dude. And I go, okay. I mean, it's just... There was, there was a defensiveness. I did that for a season, but she, fortunately for me and for her, she was persistent. Said, so, you know, basically I, she, she was able to point out my arrogance without pointing out my arrogance and being a jerk. You can't admit faults, feelings, and failures. They always have to be right, always have to have the last word. Praise God, that's what, that was, I loved that. I could out-talk my wife too. And... Uh, they are, typically, they're moralists, they're legalists who base their identity on their virtue as having it all together behavior or being open-minded and tolerant and, and progressive. It could be either one of those. Repentance is always under duress, pressure and force. That's that defensiveness. I mean, you don't need to be defensive if you have your sense of identity in Christ. You can be open. You want correction because you want to make sure you're following him. And then self-absorption is a preoccupation with self, me, myself, and I. I, I how do I look? How am I feeling? How are people treating me? What do people think about me? And it comes in two different forms. There's the superiority uh, form of this. It's boasting in my success. I deserve admiration because of how much, how much I've accomplished. Let's talk about me. Let me tell you about how great I am. Have you heard about the latest that I've done? And that's, that's that superiority. But then it can come also in the form of inferiority. It's self-pity in my suffering. I deserve admiration because of how much I've, I've sacrificed. Look how much I've done. Look how I slave for these kids. And look how much I do for this church. And oh, blah, blah, blah. So that can be, that's another form of self-absorption. Now, what's interesting in our culture is that when we see someone with an inferiority complex, we usually try to help them to build a superiority complex in replacement of that. And we haven't actually helped them to deal with their problem because their problem is that they're self-absorbed. They're focused on themselves and they need to be taken out of themselves and begin to get their eyes on, on Christ. 
and to find their sense of identity, not in their performance or what's happening to them, but in, in Jesus Christ. And uh, so if you're always down on yourself, always beating yourself up, or if you're afraid of compliments or any kind of attention, if you're bombarded with brain debates over uh, after interacting with others or brain debates about your performance or their treatment of you, it's because you are painfully self-aware, self-absorbed with thinking about yourself. It also can be seen in both introverts and extroverts. Extroverts can be very self-absorbed because they want the love and approval of everybody, someone that jokes all the time and they're, they're, they're the life of the party. And they can also be seen in introverts. They, they, they seem to be almost like social rejects because they don't want to be rejected. They're still self-absorbed. There's still a self-absorption. And there's an amazing freedom that happens as we begin to understand our sense of identity in Christ. And uh, nothing is more freeing than the delightful meditation on God's beauty, glory, and companionship. And as the moon reflects the sun, so we are to reflect the sun, S-O-N, Jesus. Psalm 34, four through five, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all of my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. So it goes back to the the verse that we just read in Ecclesiastes 8.1, a man's wisdom makes his face shine because you're looking into the very face of your God who loves you. I mean, okay, let me just cut to the chase. I mean, this dude, he went through all of that just to explain that to us. I mean, we haven't even got through the first point yet. Okay, I understand. But here's the point that I want you to understand. Who gives a rip that you got snubbed, you didn't get the date, you didn't get the promotion, someone flipped you off on the freeway? Who gives a rip about any of that if you have the God of the galaxies who loves you, adores you, gave his life for you? The reason why that stuff rattles us a bit is because we're not looking into the face of our God through his word and Jesus Christ and receiving all the glory that we desperately need and it creates this conceit within us, vain glory. It creates the rivalry. And then when someone flips us off on the freeway, we don't flip them back because we're Christian. We just run them off the road. <laughs> In Jesus' name. <laughs> Praise God. At least that's what I used to do. I don't flip people off. I just give you the look and try to run you off the road, baby. And so, I mean, that's, that's part of it. Now, now we're going to take bigger chunks as we work through this. Bigger chunks. So humility, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It is the freedom of self-forgetfulness because you are captivated with the beauty and the glory of God. And then in, in verses two through seven, I say, keep in mind, this is poetry, this is wisdom literature, it's hard to understand, so we'll kind of walk through it slowly. Keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. The NIV says, you took an oath before God. You're living, in other words, for his glory and his honor. Honor God with all that you do. Be not hasty to go from his presence. So you have, a, you have an authority figure, a boss, and he says, don't, don't get mad and just... Storm out. Now, what he's going to, he's sharing with us here some really great insight. These are great verses for dealing with a bad boss or a bad job or a bad government, bad government, or, or even if an election cycle that looks like it might turn out bad. Sound familiar? Yee, been watching the news lately? can be pretty frightening as you watch the news. And so he's going to give us some good insight how, how we should respond here. And so 
He says, be not hasty to go from his presence, talking authority here, do not take your stand in an evil cause. I see a lot of people taking a stand with evil causes, on evil causes, a lot of, a lot of picketing and all these marches and some of these things, and there's an appropriate way to do that, but there's some pretty divisive, pretty hateful things that are going on out there surrounding this election year and so and he says for he does whatever he pleases he's talking about the the leader or the king for the word of the king is supreme and who may say to him what are you doing whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing so he's saying hey you need to obey the laws of the land and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way so if you're really wise you're seeing you're seeing and responding to life from God's perspective and power, you're gonna know the proper time in the just way. There's appropriate channels to go through in appropriate ways. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be. I don't know how this is all gonna end out. And yeah, this is heavy on me. This, I really struggle with this. I don't know how this is all gonna turn out. For who can tell him how it will be? Here's your next point under humility. Humility is living with what you don't like in such a way that you let your light shine before men so that they can see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven, Matthew 5, 16. But that takes us back to that first verse. He says, you made an oath to God, live for his glory, regardless of how things are happening in your life. And so I, I gave you kind of the punch list here that he shows us in these verses two through seven. So honor God in all you do, verse 2b, Pick your battles carefully, verse three. Authority is God-given, that's implied, verse four, but we see that in the fuller context of scripture. And then in verse, uh, verse four, verse five, don't be a part of ungodly schemes. And then in verse six, look for the right time and process. Now it tells us in Hebrews 12.2, this is a memory verse for many of us, you guys, you guys know this. What does Hebrews 12.2 say? You guys know that as a memory verse? We are to fix our eyes on who? On Jesus, you guys don't sound very, very excited about that. Maybe you didn't know the verse. I would say that you probably didn't know the verse. But uh, how many do know the verse, but you're just hesitant because you're afraid that I might come down and <laughs> hurt you or something? Uh, keep your eyes, fix your eyes on who? Jesus. Jesus. Why? The, because he's the author and the finisher of our faith. Fix your eyes on Jesus. So that's where we fix our eyes. Fix our eyes on Jesus. And when you read the fuller context of that, those verses, it's so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith, so you will not grow weary and lose heart. We grow weary and lose heart in direct proportion to how we've taken our eyes off of Jesus. Did you know that? If you're feeling weary and you're losing heart, so you got your eyes off of Jesus. Put your eyes back on Jesus. Remember, wisdom is singing and responding to life from God's perspective and power. Get your eyes back on him. Focus on him. You need to honor him. That's what he's talking about here in, this, in these verses, Ecclesiastes 8, 2 through 7. If you fix your eyes on the political system or a political leader or the economy or the moral decay of our culture or the social media or the news, you're going to grow weary and lose heart. You're gonna grow weary and lose heart. I hear Christians out there going, oh, what are we gonna do? The sky's falling. This is the end of the world, almost like they're saying. It's like, oh, if we don't get the right political leader, what do we got? We don't have any choices now. We only have these two choices. These are the worst choices in the world. What are we gonna do? We're gonna change the laws. They're, they're stressing out. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Otherwise, what's gonna happen? You're gonna grow weary and lose heart. 
You're going to grow weary and lose heart. Let me remind you of what Job said at the end of his book. Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about God. He's talking to God. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Woohoo! I love it. I love verses like that because that's saying, you know what? God's working a purpose and it can't be thwarted. It can't be stopped. It can't be hindered. What's his purpose? Well, creation, fall, redemption. Yes, redeeming, redeeming people's lives, calling people from out from the world. He's building his church. And he said in the 15th chapter, 18th verse of Matthew, the gates of hell won't prevail regardless of what it looks like. I'm gonna do my purpose. His purposes are good. His glory, regardless of who gets voted in, Regardless of that, he's going to work his purpose. Let me remind you of this. The most powerful person in Judea, Pilate, looked at Jesus and asked to him in a snarky, sarcastic way, what is truth? He was looking in the eyes of truth. He's looking in the very eyes of truth. He's got, what is truth? Crucify him. Get him out of here. Let's move on. That was his attitude toward Jesus. And the only reason you know who Pilate is is because you know the story of Jesus and Pilate the governor is nothing more than a footnote in the story of Jesus. God's purposes were not thwarted. In fact, God used Pilate as a pawn to fulfill the greatest act of salvation in the history of the world. Oh my goodness! See, we lack humility when we freak out. It's, it's a sign of uh, a lack of humility because we don't see, we don't have an accurate view of our God. See, see, humility is an accurate view of God, accurate view of ourselves. It's beginning to see, okay, God, you're in control. You love us. You're going to take care of us. We're looking to you. And there's no doubt about it. I mean, hey, government is important. Being involved in the political process is important. You need to be praying for our Political leaders tells us to do that in 1 Timothy 2. We need to be doing that diligently. But most importantly, we are to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and live our lives in such a way that we let our light shine before men so that they can see our Father who is in heaven. That's what we're supposed to do more than anything, regardless of how it goes down, because we're on the winning team, regardless of what it looks like. The Bible says we win. We win. His purposes will prevail. So we've got to have this accurate view of God, especially this election year. And it really comes down to humbling yourself before God and recognizing, well, God, give me a bigger view of you because right now I'm freaking out, okay? And I need a bigger view of you. Help me to see that. Oh, yes, I see your grace. I see what you're about. I love what, as one theologian pastor put it, rather than thinking of ourselves as an embattled political minority or, a persecuted, or as persecuted underdogs, Christians should be so overflowing with the joy of their salvation, that we feel the privilege of singing his praises to those who do not know him. Because he's working for our good and his glory, and so humility is an accurate view of God. It's a high view of God. His purposes will not be thwarted. Okay, verses 8 through 14. Another chunk of verses here. No man has power to retain the spirit. So when when we die, our spirit goes. So you can't retain your spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge 
from war. He's just saying, hey, this is a battle you can't win. Nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. Wickedness can't save the wicked. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. He's just talking about bad and abusive leaders. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and where and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. This is empty. It's like, they're just playing the game. They're wicked. They're just going through the motions. They show up to church. They check the box, going through the motions. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not ex uh, executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. And this, this is one of the reasons why when you go to third world countries, because they don't have a good a good justice system. They don't have good policing. They don't have 911. They don't have a judicial system to, to execute judgment on criminals. That's why it's out of control. That's why it's out of control. That's why we need a good judicial system. That's why we need the system that we have. Though, it, though flawed, believe me, you appreciate the fact you can call 911 and you can get police officers there or the fire department there. That's what he's talking about there. Verse 12, though a sinner does evil, a hundred times and prolongs his life. Okay, so he's looking at this guy and he's evil and he's wicked and he lives a long life and you're thinking, what is that about? How does that happen? This guy doesn't give a rip about God and he's long, living a long, prosperous life. Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. It goes back to fear. So, hey, it's gonna go better for you if you fear God. This is really important because they fear before him. All in intimacy with God. Joy, life-transforming, joyful awe and wonder of the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done ruins you for anything else. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because, he's just saying he's running out of time, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. So he's just saying, you know, we were talking about it last week, that there's this idea of karma, you get what you deserve. Well, no, no, not really, not based on that. And when we look around, we see, I've seen righteous people who died, died young. What is that about? And I've seen unrighteous people or wicked people live long, prosperous lives. That's what he's talking about here. It's not karma. It's actually Christianity. Karma says you get what you deserve. Christianity says Jesus got what we deserve. It's about God's grace. God is working in the midst of this. And so we need to have an accurate view of God. So he's trying to help us to understand here. So he's says, to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, the righteous, that is. So righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. So here's humility. Humility is accepting the things that cannot change and trusting God is at work lovingly, skillfully, and powerfully doing a thousand things only he can see. That he's still in control. It doesn't make, it doesn't look like it. But we don't live by faith, we live, or we don't live by sight, we live by faith. So it tells us very clearly in God's word. And so here's the checklist that he gives us in these verses, verses eight through 14. So, so what are the things that we cannot change? The inevitability of death, verse eight. The disappointment of hurt, disappointment and hurt by others, that's verse nine. The exaltation of deceptive people, that's verse 10. The injustices of life, verses 11 through 14. But here's the point that he wants us to understand. We gotta get this. We gotta drill it deep into our heart. That God's justice may be delayed 
as he waits for sinners to repent, but it will not be denied. Did you hear what he said there? Oh, they live a prosperous life. Their time's running out. A wicked person lives a prosperous life. Their time's running out. It's better for you to fear the Lord is what he's saying. Those who persist in sin without ever turning to, to the Lord Jesus are not getting away with anything. They're not getting away with anything. Instead, they are storing up wrath for, them's, for themselves for the day of, of wrath. And in John, I wrote this down, cross-reference John 5, 22 through 24. Jesus makes it very clear that all judgment has been given to Jesus. So what's fascinating about the gospel is that Jesus is first coming. He came, he came to bear our judgment on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And if you put your faith in him, the judgment of God, the wrath of God is not on us anymore. It was placed on Jesus. But if you reject Christ with his second coming, Jesus is coming back to balance the book, settle the score, make things right. He will bring judgment. So you can either choose to allow Christ to bear your judgment, first coming, by putting your faith in him, or you can wait and he will bring judgment upon you. That's what the, the Bible's very clear about that. And the Bible puts us all on the side of needing judgment, but Jesus took our judgment. That's why I love the gospel. You can't, you can't earn it or unearn it. It comes by grace through faith in Christ. It's based on his performance, upon his work. Oh, my goodness. It's breathtaking. I want that. I'm, I'm, I'm in. <laughs> I mean, you'd be insane not to take that. You're not thinking clearly. You're not seeing clearly if you don't want to follow Jesus, if you don't want to give your life to him. I mean, wow, it's like, that's a, that's a deal you, you wouldn't want to, you don't want to bypass. You want to go for him. You want to know him and experience him. And this is really how I know when I begin to get it, and I know that when people are beginning to get it, that, that we are sinners saved by grace. This is how you begin to understand it, and I, I can see it in, in people's lives. If there is not radical growth in humble love toward everyone, even your enemies, then you don't really know that you are a sinner saved by grace. Emphasis on sinner. You don't understand that you were so sinful Jesus had to die for you because you probably still are caught in an attitude of superiority or towering or holier than thou or self-righteousness because if, if you understood, if you understood your sin, you would love sinners. You would be a friend of sinners as Jesus is and uh, you would even pray for your enemies and you would have mercy. And, and, and I know that you're beginning to get the grace part. I know you're beginning to understand that, and I know that I'm beginning to understand that. If there is not radical, concrete growth in confidence and joy, even in difficulties, you don't really know that you are a sinner saved by grace. You don't understand grace, regardless of what goes down in your life. So you, can you see that this, this idea of of uh, being a sinner saved by grace creates this humble confidence that there's no towering because I was, I was so sinful, Jesus had to die for me. But there's no cowering, because he loved me so much, he wanted to die for me. So there's this blessed self-forgetfulness. It's like, man, I'm captivated by his beauty and glory. That transforms your heart and your life. No towering, no cowering, no superiority, no inferiority. Pfft, just a great way to live. Blessed self-forgetfulness. You're just caught up in your love with him and wanting others to see the same thing. Now, verse 15 
And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. And so here's uh, the next one. So humility is enjoying the life that God has given you with deep gratitude. There's your fill in the blank. With deep gratitude without worrying, without worry and bitterness. And I, I counted in this book alone, this is what he says. He says one, two, three, four, and this is the fifth, fifth time he says this in his book. Enjoy life. Have a barbecue tomorrow. Gather your friends around. Celebrate. Enjoy yourself. He says that five times. Now, why would I put without worry and bitterness? Because it takes pride to to worry and to be bitter over the toil and the hardship of life. See, worry is believing God is gonna get it wrong or that you know better than God. That's, that's worry. And bitterness believes that God did get it wrong. And it really comes down to, I love what, uh, I love what uh, the, the writer, Benham Manning, Ruthless Trust, this is what he says in the second chapter of this book, A Way of Gratefulness. He says, let's say that I interviewed 10 people asking each the same question. Do you trust God? And each answered, yes, I trust God. But nine of the 10 actually did not trust God. How would I find out which one of the, he calls them ragmuffins, which one of the ragmuffins, ragamuffins uh, was telling the truth? I would videotape each of the 10 lives for a month and then after watching the videos, pass judgment using this criterion. The person with with an abiding spirit of gratitude is the one who trusts God. It's a, kind of a deep thought. You've got to think about that for a minute. But he's just saying, this person has a, an abiding attitude of gratitude. They're just, they're just trusting God. They're just resting in him. They know that God's in control. God loves them. God's going to take care of them. Just trusting in him through that. The foremost quality of a trusting disciple is gratefulness. Gratitude arises from the lived perception, evaluation, and acceptance of all of life as grace as an undeserved and unearned gift from the Father's hand. Such recognition is itself the work of grace and acceptance of the gift is implicit, implicitly an acknowledgement of the giver. The grateful heart cries out in the morning, thank you, Lord, for the gift of a new day and it continues to express its gratitude as the blessings unfold. Just throughout the day, celebrating everything is from the hand of God and by his grace. Oh my goodness. Quad shot venti mocha. That gets my Sunday morning going. Woo, chase it with some water. I love it. I mean, there's just so many good things throughout the day. There's just this gratefulness. You have somebody that understands that. How are you doing? Better than I deserve. How are you doing? Better than I deserve. I deserve wrath. God gives me grace. It's not karma. Jesus took all my blame for me. I'm living for his glory. Woo-hoo! That's trusting God. You're trusting God. You, you know you're trusting God when you have gratefulness. You, you got this gratefulness. Oh my goodness, I have him. I can face anything. See, that's that accurate view of God. He's for me. He's not against me. He gave his life for me. It's not based on my performance. I'm a mess, but he's still working in my life. He's transforming my life. That's a wonderful way to live. The, I like what C.S. Lewis says. The happiest moments are, are when we forget our precious selves but have everything else, God, fellow humans, animals, garden, sky, instead. 
I put this next phrase in my, kind of my, a paraphrase of my own, but if you, if you met a truly humble person, you wouldn't think him or her humble, but unbelievably content, full of gratitude, and incredibly interested in you. Unbelievably content, full of gratitude, and incredibly interested in you. Why wouldn't you be? You have your prize. It's him. Why wouldn't you have contentment? Why wouldn't you have gratitude? Just makes sense. Just makes sense. But see, we're not living in the reality of what we have in him. We need a higher view of God. We're not humble. We got pride that blocks that. And the more we begin to understand that, the more, more it changes our life. Okay, here we go. We're, we're almost finished. Last two verses. And these are wonderful verses as we kind of wrap it up this morning. But verses 16 through 17, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the, the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. In other words, if you stayed up all hours of the night trying to search out the riches of, of the knowledge of God and what he's up to, you could, never, you could never come to an end of that. It's a never-ending quest is what he's saying here. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So humility is acknowledging that knowing God and his ways are life's greatest and never-ending quest because he is infinite and we are finite. God is never, ever boring. There's nothing ever boring about God because there's always more of God to know, more of God to experience. That's the point that he wants us to understand. And thank God he chose to narrow the gap between his infiniteness and our finiteness by sending his son into this world. And now this is perhaps the most important thing I have to say to you. You need to listen up because this is what produces the humility that we desperately need so that we can continue to experience God's grace that the, our creator bridged the gap between our, our finiteness and his infiniteness by coming to this earth. I love what uh, David says in Psalm 8, one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 8, where he says, you're familiar with it? Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then in verses three and four, he says, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers and the stars and the moon, how you have set them in place. He's looking at the vastness of creation. He's just, he's overwhelmed. He says, you are so unbelievable, and yet, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, and the stars and the moon, how you have set them in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? King James actually uses the word there, you visiteth him. I looked that up in the Hebrew, and that's literally what it means, and I think that David was not only speaking poetically, but he's speaking prophetically, because through his lineage came God visiting us, he came to visit us. How do we know there is a God? Because he reveals himself to us through creation and conscience and, and commandments, but ultimately through Jesus Christ. The glory of God revealed to us through Jesus Christ. And, and Paul says in the second chapter of Philippians, it's just a, it's a hymn of praise. It's a, I, I, some theologians say it's a symphony in three movements. Incarnation. Uh, atonements, and then exaltation. And, it, and, it's, and it's in the context. Remember the verse where I said not to have rivalry or vain conceit? It's in that context because he's helping them work through their pride, and he says this is what's gonna take care of your pride is being captivated by the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done. And he says, so have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, 
who was in the very nature God, didn't cling to that, but it goes on, it says, he emptied himself. And you go, what did he empty himself of? He emptied himself not of his deity, but of his glory. And he came to this earth and became a man. And it goes through and he says, he became a man, but not just any man, he became a servant. The creator of the heavens and the earth came to this earth, became a man, became a servant. He came to serve us and he came to die, but not just any death, he died on a cross for you and I to bridge the gap that separated us from this holy God so that we could once again Figuratively speaking, we could once again walk in the garden in the cool of the day and then come back and look into the very face of our creator and find all of the acceptance, security, and significance we would ever need. That we would no longer be empty of glory, but find glory in him and in the face of Jesus. See, that's what takes us out of that, that pride, that emptiness. It's, out of, it's desperation. Try to fill the void. The void is filled through Jesus. In fact, I love, I love the definition that Paul gives us in 2 Corinthians 8, 9 of, of grace. For you know the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that though he was rich yet for our sakes, he became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. He emptied himself so that we could be full. And that's why he also says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let me share with you a story that kind of, I, I, I love, is it helps us to understand the idea of the incarnation. Uh, Dorothy Sayers, first woman to ever graduate from Oxford. She was a mystery writer of the Peter Whimsey mystery novels. And Peter Whimsey was a detective always solving mysteries, but he was a poor, lonely bachelor. And halfway through the series of detective novels, a, a character shows up uh, named Harriet Vane, and she writes mystery novels and was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. Who does this sound like? Yeah, it's, it's Dorothy Sayers. In fact, Dorothy Sayers had looked into her own creation, fallen in love, and saw how lonely he was so she wrote herself into the story, and she rescued him, got married, and they lived happily ever after. That's the gospel. That is exactly what God did through Jesus Christ. He has been in love with us since the beginning of time, so wrote himself into the story to rescue us from our sin and suffering, bringing to us fullness of life. Fullness of life. You'll never be more satisfied when you become fully devoted to him. Do you know Jesus? Have you given your life to him? That is the most important decision for time and for eternity, is for you to acknowledge your sin that separates you from God, believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and confess him as your savior and Lord. And you can do that this morning. Just open your heart to him. Live for him, live for him. Look into the face of God the one who values you, loves you, gave his life for you. There's no greater fullness in life than what can be found in him. As I'm praying here, I would invite you to make that prayer, your prayer, and then let us know. Let us know if you've made that decision for Christ. We'd love to celebrate that with you. Let's pray.
So Father God, you sent your son Jesus and he emptied himself of his glory so that we could be once and for all reconciled to you and filled with all the acceptance, security, significance we would ever need. We can't earn it through our goodness. We can't unearn it through our badness. But by grace through faith in Christ Jesus, we are saved. Oh my goodness. And as we humble ourselves before you, may all grace abound to you so that in all things at all times, having all that we need, we will abound in every good work for your glory and our joy in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Love you guys. Have a great weekend.